Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Eric Newman. Hi, Kate. Hi, Eric. It's been so long since we've been on the, the old Zoom I know. together. I know. I know. And this week, we're listening to an interview that I did with the writer Shelley Oria about her new anthology, I Know What's Best for You, Stories on Reproductive Freedom. And we're also joined by Odile Shalit, who um, is the executive director of the Bridget Alliance. And the Bridget Alliance supported the publishing of this book. Uh, the publisher was McSweeney's. Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, we were talking about this a little bit before the show, but the struggle for kind of reproductive freedom and protecting reproductive freedoms is obviously an ongoing one, but feels particularly freighted at a time when, even though it's not official, official, it looks like we're heading into a post-Roe United States. And that is, I guess I should say it's it's alarming, but I don't want that to sound defeatist because I think this is like a moment where we just have to continue to fight back against because both, I guess there's a way in which we might say this is not where it ends. And that's true on both sides. The people that are anti-abortion, this is not going to be the end of the road for them. That There's going to be further erosion or attempts to erode uh, the right to privacy. Um, as we've already seen, there's already movements to stop uh, women from getting abortion medication. So uh, medication-based abortions as well as kind of possibly contraceptive to court, you know, and the erosion and the reversal of Roe, I think should scare the shit, so to speak, out of all of us, because it's not just about this. And that means that this can't be the end for those of us who want to push for reproductive, sexual and other freedoms. Yeah. And that's something we talk about, you know, in the beginning, especially just the fact that this this is not new. So mm -hmm. Odile, who yeah. the Bridget Alliance is this organization that helps people get from out of state travel to receive abortions. Mm. Um, so it's like a funding for that. And uh, they've been around a number of years and they've already helped. I think it was around, you know, 2000 people or more that these erosion of reproductive rights, you know, they've been chipped away at little by little over the years. So yeah. you know, it's kind of like, we shouldn't be surprised. Maybe we should have seen this coming even more than we have. But now that it's here, what is the future going to hold? How can we fight back? This anthology is really interesting because it does have just so many different perspectives on reproductive rights and kind of mm. bodily autonomy. So it's not only just stories of, of women getting abortions, but it's a whole range of things and kind of understanding it not only through pregnancy, but just through like right. if other things were going on with your body. And someone said, oh, sorry, you, you want to get that kidney transplant? Well, you can't. Yeah, you know? exactly. <laughs> it's you like, can, oh, you... you're going to have to just live with that, with that kidney that's, that's not working. And, and that's how it's going to be. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of shocking if you take it a little bit out of the, the baby question and, and just look at, you know, someone making, making rules about how you, how you live. Yeah, and how you occupy your body, which is like of of all the things that we have in this life, the body is the thing that is like totally one hundred percent yours from birth until death. You of know? course, and I and I know it gets it gets real 
complicated when you're talking about, you know, something like the anti-vax movement, which takes up this the same stance of like, oh, it's my body, my choice. Um, You know, of course, bodies aren't completely autonomous. They do interrelate. There is so much connection Mm. between our bodies, uh, a question even if they are individual. Sure, right. But in terms of, of raising a child, I mean... Often that's that's just you on your own with a lot of lot of hours in there. So the the thing that someone else could say that you have to do that is is startling, and it doesn't ever end to just make me feel in, insane and enraged. Yeah. But then it can also be a inspiration to, to write and to produce fiction and art. Is another thing we talk about in the conversation. So maybe we should listen to that. Yeah, let's get to it. happy to be speaking with the writer Shelley Oria today. Oria is the author of the short story collection New York One, Tel Aviv Zero, as well as the novella Clean. She's also the editor of the book Indelible in the Hippocampus, an anthology of writing about the Me Too movement, which she joined us here to speak about in 2019. Today, she's back with me to talk about the latest anthology she's edited, I Know What's Best for You, Stories on Reproductive Freedom. The book compiles a range of fiction, essay, poetry, plays, and comics, by 28 contributors that offer perspectives on reproductive rights, healthcare, bodily autonomy, and family making, among many other things. There's also an international supplement available online that gathers writing on these topics from around the world. The book is published with support from the Bridget Alliance, a nationwide service that arranges and funds confidential and personal travel support to those seeking abortions. And I'm glad that we're also joined today by the Bridget Alliance's Executive Director, Odile Shalit. Thank you both so much for being here. Thanks for having us. So let me start us off just by kind of situating us in this particular moment in the struggle for reproductive rights. This anthology is coming out at a really urgent time. We're a few weeks out from the leaking of the Alito draft decision on Mississippi versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. I guess it's just seeming more and more inevitable that Roe is going to be overturned next month. And I'm just wondering from both of you, kind of how you've been feeling, what you've been thinking. Odile, I'm sure that you were preparing for some version of this, but now that it's really seeming like the writing's on the wall, I mean, how is it hitting you? What have you both been going through? Well, I've been sighing a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, as you said, those of us at the Bridge Alliance, our partners, folks like Shelly, we have seen the writing on the walls for quite a while. So we have already been preparing for what we expect is to come in June. Bridget is also an example of an organization that exists because the protections of Roe have not reached far enough to actually secure abortion access for many in this country already. So the very nature of our existence, the nature of our services around travel are simply what are gonna be, what we will spend more time building out growing more capacity to do and do thoughtfully and mindfully with our clients at the center of it all. So I think the last couple of weeks for us have been equal parts, exhausting, comforting, because there's been an outpouring of support and also acknowledgement for the particular work that we do in cross-state long-distance travel. And, you know, I think it's really just galvanized us to continue doing what we're doing and hunker down in those plans. 
I think for me, I mean, there's sort of no way to summarize. I think everything I've been feeling, it's a combination. Yeah. And in a way, Deal was saying the same thing. I mean, it's a combination of very many different feelings. But I think a lot of what I've been aware of is how, you know, I started working on this book back in 2019. And we were already deep into a state of crisis, which I thought just like as a queer feminist writer, Brooklyn-based person, I thought I knew things about it. And then, you know, I had lunch with Carol Davis, who's one of the women behind the Bridget Alliance. And this lunch was in part the beginning of this project. I was having this lunch with Carol because Carol is a board member at McSweeney's and was talking to Amanda Yuli, McSweeney's publisher, about this project. Amanda asked me to have this meeting. And in this meeting, I was like, oh, I did not know a lot at all. Things are dire, a lot more dire than I realized. And I really sort of just started the journey of working on this book and in the process of that, learning a lot more about it. And so, and I still feel like, you know, especially when Odile is here, I can say like, I probably know like a tiny fraction of it. It's like the more you know, the more you're kind of, at least for me, scared, I feel creeped out, I feel rageful, you know, all these things, like the more you know, the more you feel these things. And so there's so many feelings that have been coming up for me since this leaked draft, both because it's such a weird, like we started two and a half years ago working on this project, and now it's like launching in a week and at this very moment. So there's just something kind of bizarre about that. Just the very timing of it brings up a lot for me. And also because this is happening, I've been talking to so many people most of whom would identify as feminists, all of whom I love. And a lot of them have been like, oh my God. And I appreciate the feeling and whatever gets someone to be out in the streets or do whatever it is that they're able to do for abortion rights in this country. Wonderful. But I have to say personally, I've been like, what have I been telling you for three years? Like, you know, and in a way, when I think about the Dobbs case, when I think about the Mississippi case, just the fact that we don't need to know much more than the fact that the clinic involved is the one remaining clinic in the state of Mississippi, right? Just think about the absurdity, the fact that there have been fewer and fewer clinics in this country, the fact that access has been really denied, restricted and denied, de facto denied from so many women is nothing new. The situation has been escalating for so long now. Something I really appreciated in the anthology is just the real complexity, the way you portray the complexity of why someone might not want to continue with a pregnancy. And I think it's the real spectrum of reasons gets erased when in news coverage, you know, how personal it can be, how the example here that really struck me is of the woman who has three children already decides to become a surrogate and the surrogacy clinic messes up all the information that they should have been watching. So she would have possibly been carrying a baby that would have died because they didn't check the antibodies on her and the fetus. So she starts off doing this incredibly good thing for a couple who can't have children biologically. And then it she's bound by this contract she signed that she actually has given up her choice to terminate this pregnancy. That's just one example, but it's such a complex event, actually, what's happened. There's lots of other ones that are interested exploring in fiction, the story of a woman who's with a man that's dying and he really wants to have a family before he dies or kind of as his lasting you know, thing on earth and she doesn't. Someone who is a Navy officer, Khadija Queen, who's a Navy officer, I mean, and working on, in such tight quarters on a boat. I mean, it's just the real full range is explored here. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that. Is that something you were looking out for in your selection that you wanted to just 
choose many different examples? You know, how did that strike you going over the material that you were choosing? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, there's little that I was more aware of in the process of curating and editing this book than exactly what you're talking to. Kate, and sort of this idea of wanting to show a variety of experiences and also a variety of themes in the way in which those interact and intersect with reproductive freedom in this country. So the first essay you talked about is Carrie Bornstein's, and that's the surrogacy one you were alluding to. And I think that is such a sort of complex issue that even within reproductive freedom circles, at least people I talk to, even within groups of people who otherwise agree on everything, you'll find a variety of opinions on this particular topic. And to me, there's beauty on that. We should be listening to these stories no matter you know where the listening takes us. Listening is a good place to start. Exactly for the reason you point out, even though she in particular, Carrie and the speaker in this piece, ends up continuing with the pregnancy. But I think it's exactly the moment you allude to where it could have gone differently. And sort of what that brings up for her is such an interesting example of the complexity that is part of this landscape. And I also loved this essay because I really wanted kind of one piece. It's one of, I think, one of the only ones and one that does it in this way that really also celebrates pregnancy. Like she decides to be a surrogate because it's one of the best experiences she's ever had in her life three times. And she's like, oh, I don't want more kids, but do I not get to do this thing again? It's my favorite thing ever, which is like, I can't imagine as like a child-free woman who doesn't want ever to experience that. But I thought that was so interesting and beautiful. And then her description of her physical experience of pregnancy was something that I also wanted to include in this book. And then I think you alluded to Ellison Espach's story, which is let's just be normal and have a baby, I think. And that's the one about where her husband is dying. And it's like, she always wanted to be child-free. And then it's sort of his dying wish is to have a child and how she deals with that. And then Khadija Queen's essay, which is not anyone's hero. And that's the naval officer. I think it's actually enlisted sailor. That is the language that is correct. I mean, I'm thinking of kind of the different themes that I worked with, right? And so there is this idea of child freeness came up in your question and the ways in which child freeness is about, you know, a woman's choice. And then it also has these really interesting echoes with the climate crisis. And I wanted to explore both of these things. I wanted there to be child freeness pieces in this book, and I wanted there to be pieces that kind of explore the connection between the climate crisis and reproductive freedom. And then those two things sometimes overlap, but not necessarily. So we have Deb Olin Unferth's essay in the book, for instance, called My Nieces, which is really about child freeness, even though she doesn't name it, but she sort of talks about being a woman who has chosen not to have children and is very, very close to her nieces. And the whole piece sort of examines it from the perspective of the children. So both like the concern for the future through those nieces that she loves and through the lens of climate, but then also it's like throughout the piece, this idea of like what we're doing to the planet and what having a lot of kids does to the planet because we're so overpopulated by like a couple billion, at least overhousing this little house of ours. That's like on the brink of collapse. And when I invited writers, I basically said, we are very aware of this crisis. This book is being curated as a response to this crisis. And the way you respond can be in any genre and could be on any aspect of reproductive freedom. And we're interested in all of that and all of these different. And I like sort of laid out a bunch of different things and how those intersect with reproductive freedom. That was kind of the approach that was very important to me. I'm really grateful to Shelley and the work that she's done here and the writers and to Carol's inspiration because 
these stories remind us not just that reproductive freedom and reproductive rights exists on a spectrum in terms of the life cycle that one goes through of having and making different reproductive decisions and that abortion is just one element of that that can support the rest of it, but also that these stories help ground us in the meaning and the complexities and the nuance of what it means to A, make that decision and B, follow through on that and what that will look like and feel like in a world where your country fully denies that as your human right. So to navigate the needs of your family, the needs of your service, the needs of your own particular like desires for your life and have to then travel hundreds or thousands of miles to get there, funding the procedure, funding the travel, figuring out whether you're safe and where you're safe. It really just helps to deepen our understanding of what the effect of these laws are. The I, the personal experience, you know, makes very clear what a personal choice, anything having to do with your body is, and the kind of the world onto yourself and all the emotions and all the physical sensations and everything that goes through it. So there's almost no better way to learn about that complexity than by through reading about people's experiences, whether in nonfiction or fiction, but you definitely get a sense from this anthology, just of really that whole world and just how wrenching decisions can be. But again, that it is a personal choice. And I'm really glad, Odile, that you mentioned, you know, that abortion is just one option on the full spectrum of reproductive rights and reproductive choices, because that's something else that comes up in the book, that there's been control on both sides of people, you know, not being able to abort a pregnancy, but then also not being able to have a pregnancy. And that's another, I don't think that comes up as much these days, but that's another form of state control on people's bodies that certain bodies are sanctioned for reproduction and others aren't. So I wanted to ask you, Odile, about even just the idea of reproductive rights, when that kind of came into parlance, when, or, you know, if you have some sense of like how long that has been something that women or men in this country have been aware that they have a right to. I will first acknowledge in responding to this question that we're having this conversation now where we have marches going on and there are women who fought for the passage of Roe who are now seeing that crumble. So this is a conversation that started well before I was born. And granted, I'm one of the younger leaders in this space where and when the terminology reproductive rights really became a part of not just the ongoing dialogue around how and if and where and when a woman gets to have control over her own body, I think is one part of the conversation. But I think another is how, when, and where did we have the feeling that our bodies were our own? And when did we lose that sense, regardless of that terminology? And when was that taken away from us? And I think that's been happening systematically. I think it's been happening, obviously, in even more harmful ways to Black women and Brown women and people of color, young folks and immigrants. And the history there is terrifying, especially since we're now repeating that history. And so I think that it is the weight too of doing this work right now is doing it and recognizing that this is a battle that has been waged for so long 
And for us to really emerge from it is to, you know, as Shelly was talking about talking to her loved ones who are shocked right now is to really embrace this as an opportunity to have deep conversations where we get to educate people. So it's like, I was thinking about what you were saying about the more, you know, and I was thinking the more, you know, the more you actually also have to learn and have to be committed to learning. And that's where we are now. And if people turn away, then we're really screwed. But I'm heartened by the fact that I think a lot of people are actually, their eyes are open now. And as much as I wish they weren't shocked by this, as much as I really wish that they could have seen this coming, I think many do see it now. And we'll see it when things like the overturning of Roe also affects other rights, like trans rights, which is something that is a big conversation in the reproductive justice space as well and pertains to abortion access. So there is an even larger dialogue than reproductive rights that encompasses reproductive rights that needs to be at the forefront of our minds. Shelley, I wanted to ask you, yeah, just about this kind of allusion to forced sterilization that comes up a few times in the anthology, you know, in Reva Lair's piece. Reva Lair's and in Tommy Orange. Tommy Orange's, Mm -hmm. yeah. Were you surprised by that? Was that something that you had wanted to include? You know, Mm -hmm. what were your thoughts on that? So in Riva's piece that you're alluding to, it's, again, if I'm thinking the way I was talking about it earlier and sort of considering these different themes and how they intersect with reproductive freedom, I very much sought out writers with disabilities and wanted to make sure that that's one, that we have those voices in the book. And then in Tommy Orange's work, like the Indigenous experience, of course, I didn't know either of them would write about that in particular, and nor does it matter. I mean, about Half of the writers in the book are queer, very much by design on my part. And most of these pieces don't center queer issues. Great. You know, so it's not inviting a writer with disability does not mean that they're going to write about the ways that their disability or anyone's disability intersects with reproductive freedom. And I sort of love that, too. They're not about one thing. I'm just inviting them. And then we sort of see what happens. And that was part of really the magic of this process is kind of casting this wide net and then kind of seeing what happens. And then an editorial process, kind of starting to notice all these themes that I was talking about, many of which I very deliberately sought out and was hoping to get works that centered those issues, some of which were not just materializing, which is why my story ended up having three points of view, because I made like a ridiculous literary prompt for myself of like all the things that I felt like the book was not yet doing or not doing as much as I wanted it to do. And then like wrote a story that would like somehow have all of those narrative threads or all these issues addressed. So that was sort of how the process went. And then that's one such theme where I was like, The aim in the editorial process was like to make sure that we aren't, ideally, that there aren't any redundancies, but there are echoes, right? So there are these ways in which different writers or different pieces can kind of hold each other in the book and sort of shed a slightly different light, more from a slightly different angle on making a similar point. And so that's one great example of like whose babies do we want in this culture, right? And who are we telling they shouldn't have baby, namely like Indigenous women and disabled women and how their reproductive experience is so different and the issues that they've faced, especially historically, not to mention the silencing, which is exactly why I sought out voices from certain communities very deliberately because of the historic, the silencing effect, like a book like that should counteract that effect to the best of its ability. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Odile Shalit, Executive Director of the Bridget Alliance, and Shelley Oria, Editor of I Know What's Best for You, 
stories on reproductive freedom. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We have Hernan Diaz on the line with us today. His latest book is called Trust. It's a novel, and Hernan is joining us to give us a book recommendation. Um, Hernan, what book are you going to recommend? I would recommend uh, Harrow by Joy Williams. I think that is the best book I've read uh, lately. It's profound, hilarious, and absolutely destroyed me at the same time. The prose is beautiful, surprising at every turn, and it addresses central issues of our time, especially related to the environment, in a way that's not pedagogical or preachy, uh, but, but just sublime. I cannot recommend Harrow by Joe Williams enough. Uh, can you tell us what it's about? Oh, it's, uh, it's kind of hard to tell what it is about. It is, it is about, as happens uh, in other Joy Williams books, a lonely young woman who is more or less lost in an apocalyptic landscape. It is the absolute end of the world and artificiality is prized over nature. There is an, there is an intentional uh, drive to destroy whatever is left of, of nature. And then there is a group of, I would call them eco-terrorists, perhaps, mm. who, who tries to fight back. I am butchering this novel because it's so much more beautiful than this sad little summary I just gave. I don't know. I think a, a moralist young woman in a desolate landscape and a bunch of eco-terrorists sounds fantastic to me. <laughs> it really sounds like a recipe <laughs> for success. Um, it sounds great. Will you tell us the title of the book again and the author? Harrow by Joy Williams. Thank you so much, Ernan. Thank you, guys. We've been speaking with Ernan Diaz. His latest book is called Trust. It's a novel. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Odile Shalit and Shelley Oria. It also strikes me that I, and I maybe, I don't think I'm wrong that Clarence Thomas has called abortion a form of eugenics, but the difference would be that, you know, women choose to have abortions on their own and people who experienced eugenics did, did not make that choice. Um, but I just find that curious that the, that now the right has adopted that claim um, to justify getting, getting rid of abortion for women who want it. Odile, do you, is, is that a recent tactic or is that just something also with a long history? I, I've never heard that before. I think with a fairly long history, yeah, and it's something that I think, especially Planned Parenthood has faced in in their history and the history of their founders as well. I, that's like a that's a long I know that's a can of worms. conversation. Just, right, it, I know that is a can of worms, and there is you know, I Margaret Sanger is that who founded Planned Parenthood? Yes, she has a complicated past, but um, but this idea of bodily autonomy also being really central in the book and really being central to this whole conversation. And Odile, I know you have a past working in women's health care. Having, having had a pregnancy that started off with midwives, I remember that there's so much of 
trying to give people information and letting them make their own decisions. So it's completely an antithetical to the, I know what's best for you. Sometimes it's maddening if you actually don't know what to choose and you're like, you're the doctor, just tell me what's best. And then they won't. Um, and that's such a different attitude, you know, from the kind of story, Shelly, that you tell in the book about when you go to this doctor in Israel and he's kind of, you know, getting angry at you for not having gotten this HPV vaccine a while ago and telling you everything that happened to you is your fault. Um, that idea of women-led or, you know, human-led healthcare is a very different stance than what we see today um, in people telling us what to do with our bodies. So it's kind of like, how do we reconcile those two things of priming women to make decisions and then the, the kind of possibilities for those decisions are just narrowing and narrowing. I mean, where do we kind of go with that? Yeah, I mean, I'm really to talk about the the doula aspect of it for a bit. I'm I'm really grateful that I started my career in reproductive health as a um, a birth doula, and then I became a full spectrum birth and abortion doula, and then I became a social worker and worked at an abortion clinic for many years. And so and. The way I always thought about doulas that's cool about them is that each one gets to decide kind of who they are. Like there are yoga instructors that are doulas, there are massage therapists, acupuncturists, et cetera. And I had a few of those different tools, but the tool that was my favorite to use, and I think then had its echoes in being a social worker at an abortion provider was to be an educator and an information and a provider of information and a space holder that at minimum, anyone along their reproductive journey should have at all times available to them information about what the options are in front of them that will, A, empower them, that will allow them to feel connected to what they are doing, what they are choosing to do, what are they not choosing to do, that make them feel that they have that agency. And that is something grossly lacking from the medical system in general. And I think, especially when we're thinking about disabled persons and the lack of research and information there is around there to educate someone who is choosing to have an abortion, who either may be approaching information about the pregnancy that may suggest that that child will have a disability or who themselves has a disability. And there is a gross lack of information about what kind of support they need throughout their pregnancy or to have a healthy pregnancy and parent. So at all moments of this, we do have to take stock of how we have failed women and pregnant people historically in giving them the information that they need to make these choices so that they can thrive, thrive within their own bodies and thrive within their own communities. And here we are again, faced with another moment where that information will be taken away. And it was those moments where I would sit with a patient of mine at the abortion clinic that I worked at, and I would sit down and talk through abortion and adoption and parenting and feel them leave the room knowing that they had full support with whatever their choice had been that I felt like, okay, I did my job and this person got the things that they needed. And then when I would see on our schedule, someone scheduled to come to us who lived in Tennessee and I was in New York and the clinic was in New York and they couldn't make it. And I knew that they never got to have that conversation. They never got to sit down with someone flesh and blood and hear them say, your choice is your choice. You are supported. You are loved. These are the things that you can do. 
they are safe, that I realized how much we're failing women and pregnant people in this country. It is all about information and access. Yeah. And that's, that's so much of what fuels the work that we do at Bridget and fuels the importance of the stories that Shelley has collected, that it reminds us that there is an actual person with these complexities that they're experiencing in their lives that need a space to exist, that they can figure out what's right for them. Can't help but think of how to hear you describe information and what information means and how you relay information when you come from a place of dignity and how that's in, in 180 from when I think of, you know, of CPCs, of the fake clinics that I address that a little bit in the forward to the book. And then I also took that on as part of, you know, in my own story that I mentioned earlier, one of the, the, the third section and the third point of view is from the point of view of a woman who volunteers in one of these places. And I, that was on that list that I mentioned earlier of like the weird prompt that I gave myself because I like tried to get different writers to be like, do you know about fake clinics? Like, I just felt like, no, there wasn't enough conversation about it anywhere. I, when I heard about those and the fact that there is about and again, Odile can correct me, but I remember from research to the forward. So this would have been when I wrote that, like over a year ago, it was like 2,700 or something like that in the country and like more than three per abortion clinic. So there's, you know, fake, more than three uh, fake clinics that mislead women, which is why what you were talking about, Odile, was making me think about, about that because they do the exact opposite of that, right? They make sure that women have misinformation. They make sure women don't have the right information. They would do like things that I really just consider diabolical, like telling a woman like, hey, you have enough time. What, what's the rush? Just think it through and then make the appointment for like two days after, you know, abortion is no longer legal in that state and, and things like that. It's all about skewing and distorting and, and, and withholding information. And it's, there's something about that that is one of the eer most eerie, disturbing, creepy aspects of this moment that we're living through. And that happens so often that people wind up thinking they're going to an abortion provider, but they're going to a crisis pregnancy center or a fake abortion clinic. And our coordinators will get a referral for someone. They'll see the name of the clinic and they'll see that they don't recognize that. And they'll look up, look it up, or they'll talk to some peers that are in that city or state. And they will learn that that, that person had accidentally booked an appointment at the abortion clinic. And then we work to reroute them to get an appointment at the right place. But I will never forget this patient that I have when I worked at, as a social worker at this abortion provider. Um, we had a couple of floors to our building and I, I picked her up on the first floor to bring her to the second floor to my office. And we got into the elevator and she started to shake. And I, I took a moment and I turned to her and I said, is everything okay? And she said, is this the moment, is this the time where you're gonna take me to watch the video? And I was like, what are you talking about? And she's like, is this the time where you're going to take me to watch the video, the video where you show me what happens in an abortion? And I said, okay, let's come to my office. Let's talk about this. We're not going to watch a video, I promise. And so we go to my office and she tells me about how before coming to us, she had gone to a fake abortion clinic in New York City that was two blocks away from our, from our office, that they had forced her to watch a four-hour-long video of a totally unreasonable and unrealistic depiction of an abortion procedure that had completely traumatized her. And somehow, thankfully, she found out about us and she got to us and we were able to sit with her and give her the care and the information again that she needed so that she could make the decision that was right for her. But she was traumatized 
by these fake abortion clinics. It makes me think of the, the essay, There is Nothing Very Wrong With Me. Mm-hmm. Um, because, Anisha, yeah. Yeah, because of also that, that moment, maybe talking with a counselor uh, at a clinic could also be the first time that someone may have reflected on things, you know, sexual traumas, things that have happened to them. It's, it, it is for, and I, you know, there was that beautiful movie sometimes, rarely, never, always, um, Eliza Hitman, you know, where there's this long scene with a counselor and her thinking about some of her sexual experiences and realizing, um, you know, maybe that she had done a lot of things that actually didn't feel good. Um, that it's not only that people are trying to prime you for, for one decision, but it's also a moment for many women to reflect on their whole sexual history um, sometimes because, right, because these are the questions that are being asked and this is the kind of information that is trying to be um, relayed to people making all these decisions. It's like, it's, it's, a lot of, it's, it's, it's a lot of work that people who, you know, are, are at clinics are doing, not just helping people make decisions about abortions it, it, as it seems, you know? Yeah. And that was, again, like a, something I was highly aware of and a very, very intentional choice was to make sure that the book also kind of um, emphasizes and explores exactly what you're talking about and, and what we would use now the term me too as shorthand, but essentially the connection between sexual assault and, and reproductive freedom and, and not only because that was my frame of mind, because the book you alluded to, Kate, in your intro, Indelible in the Hippocampus, that we talked about last time I was on this podcast, I was sort of right on the heels of that book tour when I started working on this project. So it was, you know, sort of where I was coming from, but but in a much deeper, bigger way, because I don't think, because I think those things are linked, because I don't think it's a coincidence that the society where sexual assault is so rampant is the same one now policing women's right to their own bodies, the bodily autonomy and trying to force women and, and people who are pregnant to stay pregnant. Um, you know, it's not some bizarre coincidence. There's a whole system, right, in place. It's kind of um, making sure that men continue to have more power than women and that certain bodies have more power than other bodies. And I think it's so important. I think if I had to sort of distill or crystallize one main aim that I had in, in curating and editing this book, it is to create or participate or enhance a conversation that is wider than, than the one we were having, for instance, when you and I had this conversation last time. Um, I'm, I'm hoping that culturally we can start making those what I think of as like collective neural pathways, you know, like we each have the individual ones, but, but we can create collective ones as a society to like see those that those things are inter are interlinked and see that those aggressions against women and their bodies are connected and how they are connected. Um, it's something that that is super, super important to me with this book. Yeah, you you write in the introduction that editing this book, you know, gave you some hope. What am I gonna say? That it didn't? Come on. <laughs> well, maybe you could who would want to read this book? Shelly, share, share where the hope is coming from at this point. I mean, I, I'd love to know. No problem. Um, yeah, I'd love to get some hope. So tell us, tell us why editing easy, this. Easy, easy question. Thanks for that, Kate. Super easy question. Um, to be at the risk of being sort of super trite, um, 
my personal hope is in art, is in books, is in literature. Now, you know, I feel like more and more these days, maybe because I keep saying shit like I just did, I come across the sort of easy cynicism of people who are like, are you even for real? Nobody reads books. Art's not going to change the world. Like I hear that all the time, possibly because everyone's saying it and possibly because I walk around saying the opposite a lot. But I actually think there's something almost naive about not recognizing that, like art and literature percolate and become all the content that we consume all the time. And it does change us and our thinking and our collective neural pathways and our personal ones all the time. Um, so better get in there and, and do your part, do one's part to shape the kind of conversation and collective awareness and consciousness that we want. And also that's where I do get a little bit groovy or, you know, or, and maybe naive. I also believe in it in ways that are harder to quantify or name or explain. I think that there is the sort of energetic part of it where art and art making and, and art and the receiving of those efforts with an open heart actually matters and actually makes this world if not better, then more tolerable. But I'll be the first to admit that I choose to believe it because I wouldn't get out of bed in the morning otherwise. So I absolutely believe it because I have to. And Odile, um, with Rosa returning being imminent, maybe, I don't, I don't know if there is an alternative scenario um, in your eyes or if you think something else will happen. You know, tell us just what, beyond the obvious of voting and you know, donating and supporting places like the Bridget Alliance, what else can just an average person do? I mean, what, what, how can we, how can we mobilize now to make, you know, or, or what are the possibilities? I mean, this is going to happen most likely. And then could it be undone like quickly after? I mean, um, or is it just going to be really, or is it going to be that it's actually just a slow erosion because, when the Republicans control the House and the Senate, they're going to want to pass, you know, further restrictions on abortions. I mean, where do you see things going from here and how can we help? Well, I am certainly not a legal or policy expert, but we feel confident and our partners and peers who are legal and policy experts feel confident that um, where we are headed is that some 26 states are poised to ban abortion um, and that Roe will likely be overturned. And I think what that means for us, for organizations like the Bridget Alliance, for our partners that are practical support organizations and abortion funds is we all have to gear up to help more people. So donations mean everything. The conversations that we are having right now with the press that are spreading awareness about the existence of our organizations, but also spreading awareness around why we are needed are critical. Voting is absolutely necessary. And that's not just because we need people to vote to make sure that we get in good politicians so that we can recreate something better than Roe or even try to preserve Roe, but because in the immediate short term, we're going to have to fight an onslaught of attempts to criminalize people who have abortions or who provide access to abortions. So are the voting and the donating that we're talking about, that's enough. <laughs> we need to make sure that people are showing up for their local elections. We need to make sure the people on the lower level courts that the judges that are put into place there are ones that are pro-choice and that will not use this as an opportunity to criminalize people who are trying to take care of their 
own bodies, take care of their own families, take care of their own communities, exercise their human rights. I think beyond donating and voting, absolutely, if there's a local organization to you and you're interested in volunteering your services, find that local organization and connect with them. Bear with them because they are overwhelmed now too. So do not expect quick responses. But I think, and this is something that Gloria Steinem, the first time I ever heard her speak at a rally, she said to all of us, I want you to go home and talk about this at your dinner party, at your dinner table. And I have really carried that with me. Um, And I have said it in other spaces like this one, like talk about this. It's not a fun topic of conversation. It's not a joyful one, but it is, it is the thing that makes for joy. Because if we lose sight of how important abortion is to the fabric of our society and our existence as individuals and families, then our opportunity for joy will continue to be chipped away. I just want to add that to that, that in my view, and again, Odile can, can correct me, but the way I've been thinking of this, like the Bridget Alliance and organizations like Bridget are the future of this fight because it's going to, so much of it is going to come down to travel. Like in the way, again, speaking as a writer person, you know, not, not as an expert, but when I'm looking at this reality and knowing that the kind of bullshit, if you'll excuse my language, that we're hearing about, oh, it's just about taking it back to the States. Meanwhile, you know, it seems, meanwhile, we know that they're already working on on blocking uh, women's rights in the, within states. And it seems at least uh, very clear to me that if, if there is a, an opportunity, and again, I'm a legal expert, but it seems obvious that if there is an opportunity to go get back to, to court and actually ban abortion, then they won't be saying, oh, it should be to the states. Like if they had the opportunity to actually uh, to actually ban abortion, and there's no doubt in, in my mind that they would go for it. And so when you think about, about that reality, and when you think about, as Odile mentioned, like 26 states uh, poised to, and I think 13 states have trigger laws, right? If I have that number correct. And um, so we just know that the post, uh, if Roe is, is indeed overturned, that post-row reality is going to come down to travel so much with probably more and more states blocking um, women's rights um, and, and pregnant people's rights like as we go. And so and so then organizations that facilitate travel become even more essential. So when I think of the future, really that's that's what comes to mind. I just feel so grateful that, that the Bridget Alliance exists and that there are um, other organizations like it. And and you know I sort of feel happy that I'm a writer and I don't work there because it seems like they're <laughs> going to be so overwhelmed, even more overwhelmed than they already have been. Thank yeah. you for that, Shelley. How many how many women um, are you able to help? You like is there a ballpark number that you um, you have? Yeah. So when Bridget started, we were helping about 20 people to 40 people a month. That was four years ago. We now help around 125 folks a month traveling from something like 46 different states. Um, and to date, I think we've helped over 2,200 people. Um, the cost of travel is around $1,000 on average per person. And our travelers travel on average 1,000 miles to get to their nearest abortion provider. Um, so I'm grateful to you, Shelley, for naming Bridget as a part of what the future looks like. That is, that couldn't be truer. 
Um, and yeah, it means organizations like the Bridget Alliance, it means the volunteer networks, it means the abortion funds will be operating more so than we ever have before. And we'll need a great deal of support to continue doing so. Mm-hmm. To close, I might just ask, you know, the, the most maddening thing to me is the is the belief the the belief of someone who believes more in the right of the unborn than the living and i know that's gets into like a lot of you know philosophical questions about what constitutes life i i find myself really losing it when i try to track someone who believes in the death penalty but you know doesn't believe in abortion um who believes in gun rights, uh, but not abortion, you know, that this, this thing where I'm like, it doesn't make any sense. And um, that can drive you nuts. And it's like, do you think it's really futile to try to work that out on the ground and argue for like the validity of abortion? Or do you think really at this point, it's just most important that we focus on securing personal rights and the kind of arguments that people give of why women shouldn't have abortions are like just not even worth getting into. I think my quick and short response is that we have made too many concessions in this fight. I believe that we should be going for it all. We should be naming abortion as a right. We should be normalizing that and we should be fighting for human rights at the same time. I'm, I wanted to respond to that from a, a slightly different angle and just say, again, that is why that's like, I should have the t- a t-shirt that says art matters or books matter. I think that's exactly why, because I think so often as much as the political, the fights on the political sphere are crucial, that's where we actually do the work. That's where we actually make change. But I think often um, in that sphere, because of the need for such clarity of goals, which you know are necessary to any campaign or necessary to a protest even, or um, sometimes nuance and complexity can be lost. And I think books and art and literature are so good, are, are meant for that. They're all about the nuance. They sort of fall flat when they don't have nuance and complexity. So it's exactly for questions um, like that, that I think that, that I just feel grateful to be a writer and to be in a position of making a book like I know it's best for you. Um, and, and I hope that, that as, a, as a society that we don't lose sight of that, that we keep being invested in, in that mechanism and that way that we have of, of responding and processing information and, um, and change. Thank you both so much for being here. And um, that's a, a great reason for why um, I'm so glad that this book, I Know It's Best For You, exists, Shelley. So um, thank you for editing it. Um, and thank you, Odile, so much for being here and telling us more about the Bridget Alliance and answering other questions. Uh, it was great to speak with you both. Thank you so much, Kate. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you. That was Odile Shalit of the Bridget Alliance and Shelley Oria. She has edited a new anthology called I Know What's Best For You, Stories on Reproductive Freedom. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. 
Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Blood. 